Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, international sleight of hand magician Costa Kimlot. Engage your destiny founder Ben Peterson, former rare earth lead singer Peter Rivera. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Filbury. Welcome, everyone. We are so very happy to have you with us. We've got a great audience here in our theater. One of these days, why don't you come and be part of the studio audience? I promise you will have a wonderful time. You really will. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we are just hours away from the annual observance of Memorial Day. That's when we honor those of our nation's military who went to war to fight for our families and our freedom, but who never came home to their families nor got to live their lives in the very freedom that they provided for the rest of us. Let us never forget their sacrifice, even amidst this long weekend of baseball, barbecue, and the beach. But instead, take a few moments to soberly reflect on what they gave up. And yet, it's precisely because they gave the last full measure to protect and preserve our great nation that we have to demand that those who violate the freedoms that uh, we hold dear, if they violate them, they've got to be held accountable. Because to do any less would dishonor the sacrifice of our service members. In the course of the past few weeks, a very important trial has been held in Washington, D.C., right in the shadow of the major media of the world. But quite frankly, very few have even mentioned it much less actually covered it. And why would they? It actually reveals just how complicit the media has been in lying to you, to me, and the entire country. And it affirms that journalism is indeed dead. And the major networks and the newspapers have ceased to be fact seekers. They've tragi tragically become fact deniers. You know, they reacted pretty harshly when they were called the enemy of the people. But to know the truth, however painful and inconvenient it may be, and to fail to tell the people the truth, and instead knowingly perpetuate a lie, well, that is to become the people's enemy. It's what they are. And certainly to become the enemy of our great republic. Now, with the exception of a few outlets, the media has pretended that Donald Trump colluded with the Russians to subvert our country. But as the sworn testimony in the trial of Hillary Clinton lawyer Michael Sussman has uncovered. The collusion was from those who intentionally lied about Donald Trump and who knowingly fed false information to the FBI, which led to millions of tax dollars of investigations, chest-pounding politicians like Adam Schiff, flagrantly lying about having evidence that never existed, and the collapse of confidence in the FBI. It became clear that the media were willing participants in the crime of defrauding the FISA court to investigate Donald Trump. But the preponderance of evidence against Michael Sussman 
may not mean conviction. Hate to say it. I mean, let's look at some things. The judge in the case is a longtime Democrat operative. His wife is the attorney for former FBI agent Lisa Page, who sorted an unethical love affair with fellow FBI agent Peter Strzok, produced thousands of revealing text exchanges. Now, at least one of the jurors was a financial contributor to Hillary Clinton, yet still got seated on the jury. A couple of others expressed their absolute disdain for Donald Trump. And at least one of the jurors is said to have only pledged to try to be objective. But the truth coming out of the trial is going to leave little to the imagination. Even former Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook, uh, Mook testified under oath that Hillary herself did in fact know about the attempt to smear Trump and personally okayed it. So much for the nonsense that she didn't know anything about it. Also, kudos to special counsel John Durham. His methodical, albeit slow, approach is beginning to pay off as new information continues to surface as to just how corrupt the D.C. sewer really is. The brave men who gave their lives in the battlefield didn't die so that taxpayer-funded officials would betray the trust of the people by trying to prevent a candidate from being elected and once elected, then trying to destroy and discredit him. No, these are the folks who died to sustain a nation of laws, not a nation of lawbreakers. You know, there are really two battlefields we need to remember this Memorial Day weekend. The one on which our heroes died defending our freedom, and then the other one, the one in the courtrooms, Congress, and in our state and U.S. capitals, where the battle for the soul of our nation is raging. Our servicemen and women have given their lives to protect the rights of the rest of us, to make sure that we don't lose on the battlefields that we're fighting here at home. I say to all of those who serve us in uniform, God bless you and God bless America. Coming up, we're going to be talking with Governor Tate Reeves of Mississippi. A historic decision is going to be coming down from the Supreme Court in a matter of weeks. It could strike down Roe versus Wade and send the abortion issue to the states. Governor Reeves will tell us what that means for Mississippi and America. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tate Reeves was first elected to public office in 2003. He was the youngest state treasurer in America and the very first Republican to hold that office in the state of Mississippi. He's now the 65th governor of Mississippi. He just signed the largest tax cut in that state's history into law. And he says this comes as President Joe Biden and his administration are fundamentally out of touch with reality as their policies continue to hurt everyday Americans like you. Tate Reeves is fighting back. 
I want you to welcome to the show a wonderful governor, somebody who is setting a high standard for how it ought to be done. Please welcome Governor Tate Reeves of Mississippi. <laughs> governor, great having you here. Well, thank you, Governor. Great to be on today. I want to uh, talk about the fact that your state very well may be the linchpin of the Supreme Court decision that will finally reverse, after all these many years, the hideous decision that abortion is some kind of a federal right. And that, that is a piece of legislation that happened in Mississippi, got challenged in the court. It's now bubbled all the way to the Supreme Court. What's at stake here? So what's at stake is literally saving babies' lives. And it's, it's a fascinating time uh, to be governor of the state that whose case is there. But, but Governor, I will tell you, I was lieutenant governor and president of the Senate when we passed this particular bill. Uh, giving us this opportunity to get before uh, the Supreme Court and, and asking them uh, at a minimum to uphold our law, uh, but also to overturn Roe, because if you read the United States Constitution, there is no right to an abortion in our Constitution. In fact, there is nothing in our Constitution that prevents states like Mississippi uh, and others from uh, providing restrictions on abortions. Um, and we're just very hopeful that that draft opinion that was floated, which is a another topic in and of itself. But we're just very hopeful and we pray every day that that actually uh, is where five of the nine justices land on our case. It's got to make you feel very, very fulfilled knowing that a case that started in your state that you had a hand in and that you've continued even as becoming governor, pushing for it to go to the Supreme Court, that this could be what many of us would say would be the moment to finally bring some justice to this issue. Um, you know, I, I just think it's historic and, and you have to feel good and the people of Mississippi who are very pro-life overall have to feel good that, uh, that you're serving in this, in this capacity. And I mean, we're praying hard that this would come about. Well, that, that is exactly right. We are praying hard and, and we're hopeful. And, and we, every, every day since the oral arguments were made before the U.S. Supreme Court, we listened to the questions that were asked. We knew that there were uh, a majority of, of justices that, that could ha make a simple reading of the Constitution and recognize that there is no guaranteed right to an abortion. There is no guaranteed right to kill another uh, American being in our U.S. Constitution. And so we were hopeful then. We became even more hopeful when the, when the leaked draft opinion occurred, which, by the way, is in and of itself a, an internal attack on uh, the institution that is the Supreme Court. But we've become even more hopeful, uh, but it is just a draft opinion at this time. And so we don't, we don't want to get too far out in front other than to pray and just pray that, it, that a majority of those justices um, stick with their guns, are not intimidated uh, by the far left, because you've seen what's happened in Washington, uh, D.C., the picketing outside their homes, they're just really the craziness uh, of the far left on, on this issue and so many others, um, we, we just pray. You were one of the uh, governors who was heralded for your handling of the COVID issue. Uh, you didn't lock everybody down and tell them where they could go or not go. Republican governors had a very different approach than many of the Democrat governors. But you in particular, I think... Uh, really came through as a real leader in saying, look, we're going to make these decisions at the local level. Just share with us the process that you had to go through as a governor. A lot of pressure coming down from the federal government for you to bend and shut down churches and all sorts of things. How'd you handle that? Well, there's no doubt that there was a, there was a lot of 
pressure from, from the top down, if you will, from the, the federal government. Uh, there's also a lot of pressure from local governments and, and particularly the Democrat elected officials who wanted uh, us to make those uh, tough decisions to, to do things that just didn't make sense. And it really, when you think about the, the way in which we approached COVID uh, from a, a conservative governance standpoint, it really highlights the differences between the, the way Democrats believe and the way Republicans believe. Democrats believe in centralized decision-making. They believe that all decisions are better if they come from Washington, D.C. We, on the other hand, as conservatives, believe that it's the individual that has the right to make decisions based upon what's best for them and their families. And so as we approached it, we tried to uh, recognize the the need for for freedom, uh, for opportunity. We tried to provide information to every single Mississippian. Um, We tried to point them in the right direction so that they could get the facts. And we encouraged them to talk to uh, their doctors, to talk to their neighbors. But at the end of the day, we believe in personal responsibility and people have to step up and make decisions based upon what is in their best interest. I, as a governor, uh, I don't know the individual scenarios of each and every family across Mississippi. Uh, my job is to provide information, recognize that we've got to protect lives, but also we have to protect livelihoods. Um, and that's the approach that we took every single day. And, and I'll tell you, um, the reality is my family's a, uh, in a small business. My dad started his business in the early 1970s um, and has been in business every day. And I guarantee you he went to work today and will go to work tomorrow and probably and yesterday as well. But having that background coming from um, someone who knows what it's like to sign the front of a paycheck, knowing what it's like, that when you think about this definition of an essential business, the reality is every small business is essential. And the reason, and the reason it's essential is because every employee depends on it to provide food for their family and, um, and, and shelter for their family. And so that's the approach that we took. And what you see now here, uh, some... Uh, two and a half years later, is the dichotomy, the difference between how well Republican-led states are doing economically and how poorly Democrat-led states are doing economically. I think it shows you um, very clearly uh, that we were making the right decisions, even though uh, those far-left outlets like the uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post didn't necessarily like it the way we were doing it. You know, I, I have a special place in my heart for obvious reasons. I think governors are on the forefront of, of really leadership of the country. Nothing happens in Washington, virtually nothing. They make a lot of speeches, but very few decisions. You, on the other hand, leading a state, you have to balance your budget. You have to make things work. And a lot of people may not fully understand that. Look at the landscape now. Or entering into an election season, what do you think will happen in the 2022 elections in the Congress, the Senate, the governorships? What happens this year? Are the people sort of saying, maybe this left-wing leadership is not working? I don't think there's any doubt that across the country, uh, there is buyer's remorse uh, from the voters, uh, specifically uh, those uh, voters in the middle, even those that maybe are left-leaning on certain issues, recognize that the mistakes that were made in the 2020 election, uh, electing a Democrat-controlled House and a Democrat-controlled Senate and uh, with this particular president in the White House, um, it, it has led to uh, far-left policies that hurt everyday Mississippians and everyday Americans. When you think about uh, the, the fact that uh, every single announcement that the president makes with respect to the oil and gas industry is an attempt to constrain supply. 
When you constrain supply with a fixed level of demand, guess what happens? Prices go up. We're in a state like Mississippi, we're in a state like Tennessee and Arkansas, where people drive a long way to work every single day. Doubling the price of gasoline makes it harder for them to put food on their table. And oh, by the way, not only does it make it harder simply because they're paying more at the pump, they're also, when they get to the grocery store to put food on their table, they're paying more for bread and milk because the cost to move goods and services around the country are going up. And this inflation is really hurting everyday Americans. And I think there's going to be a major backlash against the far left Democrat Party because of it. Well, let's hope so. And I tell you what I hope, that more states will elect governors like Tate Reeves. Uh, you have been an exemplary governor, and I'm just so very grateful for the leadership you've shown, not just through COVID, but tax cuts. You've managed the state effectively and resourcefully. And it's just an honor to have you here. And I think all of our audience appreciates being able to see good government in action, which is exactly what they see when they well, see Tate you. Reeves from Mississippi. Thank you. Now, for our audience, we'd love for you to keep up with Governor Reeves heading to Huckabee.tv. We'll have all his links so that you can find out more about what he's getting done in Mississippi. And I say that as the guy next door over in Arkansas. So it's, it's all I can do to really commend him for doing the great job he's doing, but he's doing it, and I'm grateful for it. Speaking of doing a great job, Keith Bilbrey is doing a great job as our reliable link to the rest of the show. He's standing over there right now wanting to tell us what's coming up. Well, up next, hilarious news stories on In Case You Missed It. Then, the amazing magic of Costa Timlock. Still ahead on Huckabee. Welcome back. Trey Quarter, the Music City Connection, playing a little song from the Monkees called Daydream Believer to bring us back. Keith, that's a song you and I both know. Oh, yeah, I know every word. You know, it, it amazes me, but Trey and this band, they can play music from basically any genre, any generation. Yeah. They're the best in the country. Give them a big hand, would you? Absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Beth. Well, from the worm patriarchy to sheep behaving badly. That's good. That was bad. <laughs> that was bad. Well, folks, we've got the news that proves that the world is a zoo on this edition of In Case You Missed It. Well, according to the old song about divorce, you better keep her. I think it's cheaper. <laughs> well, wealthy industrialist George David is learning that the hard way. The SmokingGun.com reports that his estranged wife, Swedish Countess Marie Douglas David, told the court that she needs more than the $43 million in their prenuptial agreement. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, that's that. just pittance of money <laughs> because she spends, get this, brace yourself, $53,823 a week. What? A week. On what? Whoa. I mean, 
I don't know if she's a Swedish countess, but she's spending money like a U.S. Wow. congressman. That's oh. what she's doing. Terry's got a few things he wants to sell her. Ooh. Got the number. All right, here's some of her expenses. $8,000 a week for travel, $4,000 a week for clothes. What kind of clothes do you need? $4,000 a week. Unbelievable. And $1,000 for hair and skin care every week. Now, I could use that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll love this. She only spends 30 bucks a week for reading materials. Uh, I think huh. mostly she reads the Neiman Marcus catalog. I that's about that's it. it. But she must have figured out how to scrimp because she did file an update stating that she'd slashed her spending down to only $30,000 a week. Oh, wow. <laughs> a real pauper, I say. Yeah. Anyway, the supply chain shortages must really be bad. <laughs> Maybe she traded her Rolls Royce in for a Tesla so she could save on gas. <laughs> I got to tell you, this story reminds me of the old joke about the guy whose credit card got stolen, but he didn't call the police because the thief was spending less than his wife. There you uh, go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. This week's Huck's criminal mastermind is a suburban Tampa man who kept repeatedly calling 911 to tell the police that President Biden needs to be placed in prison. And no, I was nowhere near Tampa. I was not there. Wasn't me. He got in trouble, though. He got charged with abusing the 911 line by calling about something that's not an emergency. I don't know about that. I mean, have you seen the news lately? Maybe it is. Anyway, you'll love this line. Police believe alcohol was involved. You're you always know when the last line of the story says, and it's believed that alcohol might have been involved. Yeah, I think that's probably a given. Anyway, he must have seen the price of booze. That's what really put him over the top. <laughs> Next, we go to the latest battlefront of the gender wars, parasitic worm names. You ever thought about that? Never. Me neither. <laughs> but in New Zealand, researchers have found that over the past 20 years or so, Nearly 600 newly discovered species of parasitic worms were named after scientists, but only about 19% of them were named after women. I mean, let's have some, you know, gender parity here. Absolutely. I mean, because every woman would love to have a parasitic worm named after her, <laughs> wouldn't it? I can't imagine that being a life goal. I but, can't either, you know, but, you know, even the hookworm was named after Captain Hook. Yeah. Trey, he's gone over the edge. I don't know I, if that's a joke or... I might know that know. guy from Tampa, you know? I don't know. I want to move down. The researchers <laughs> blame this on consistent gender bias and parasitic worm naming, because I'm sure that's a subject. Now, to be fair, parasitic worm does truly sound like something that a woman would call a man. Personally, I think people who hunt for dumb stuff like this to be offended by, I think they are the parasitic worms. <laughs> You're right. I do. <laughs> finally, a favorite word, finally. Finally! Let's stay in New Zealand where the term battering ram has a whole different meaning. There was a store owner over there who arrived one morning to find his front window smashed. He thought he'd woken up in Los Angeles, but it was still New Zealand. Security footage revealed that an escaped sheep had gotten into oh, a no. headbutting contest with his own reflection you know what this is like? This is like watching The View. That's what that's like. <laughs> wow. That's what that is all right there. Yep. 
Come on. That was good. Sound effect. Sound oh, effect. I had to go in there. <laughs> well, before you get sheepish about these jokes and flock to the exits, we're going to end it all here. But remember, we read the news. Well, he fooled Penn and Teller, but can he fool Mike and me? Prepare to be amazed by magician Costa Kemlot, next on Huckabee. Present your favorite show with your very own Made in the USA Huckabee mugs, t-shirts, and more. And welcome back, everyone. My next guest is a native of Kiev, Ukraine. He's both a master magician and an expert on perception. In fact, he's taught business people all over the world how to think like a magician. He's also performed on five continents. He's fooled Penn and Teller, but can he fool Keith and me? We're about to find out. Would you please welcome the amazing Kostya Kimlat? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. My name is Kostya. I am originally from Kyiv, Ukraine, and I'm a professional magician. So when people ask me where my magic powers come from, the answer is pretty simple. Chernobyl. <laughs> I know, I know you, you all laugh. I'm the one that glows in the dark, okay? <laughs> True story. So I grew up in the Soviet Union, waiting in line for rations of milk and bread, and my family left for America when I was nine years old. Now, thankfully, we were not fleeing bombs and bullets. We came for freedom and opportunity, and boy, did we get it. I've been living the American dream as a professional magician for 25 years. I mean, I get to bring joy and wonder to people for a living. I love it. But when Russia's war in Ukraine started this February, doing magic became rather meaningless. I couldn't perform for weeks. Until I heard that there was a magician in Ukraine, Dmitry Mosin, who was performing at shelters and hospitals and schools, bringing people together, bringing them relief and joy when they needed them most. Now, I heard he was performing a magic trick, a trick that I absolutely love and that's been around for centuries. It is a simple trick, one that I'm gonna do for you all right now. I'm going to break this thread into little pieces and I'm going to put it back together. That's it. But imagine what a Ukrainian child sees when she sees this trick. At a moment when her life feels broken. At a time when she's had to flee from her homeland under the fire of bombs. And there she is, leaving her father alone to de defend the land. And she's there with her mother, scared, anxious, amongst the unknown of life. It is at this time that she needs magic the most. To remind her that she is not alone. And she sees that when the magician comes to the shelter to do a little magic to break this thread. When people volunteer, they bring food to feed her family when countries send medical supplies to save her father, when all of us travel, we help in any way we can. People come from all over the world to support Ukraine, and America stands united with Ukraine in this fight for freedom. 
At this time, this little girl doesn't see broken threads. She sees a little fluffy ball, earth. Look, there's Ukraine, there's America. And at this point, this child doesn't just see a magic trick. She sees that with the help of others, it is possible to put a broken life back together. Wow. Kosia, that is a very powerful illustration. Uh, you know, during this time, um, I'm guessing a lot of people have reached out to you knowing that you're Ukrainian. What have people said to you? You know, the, the support from Americans has just been remarkable because people from all over the world help. But the very first phone calls I got were from American veterans. Really? They were the very first ones to call on the first day of the war and to say, we have to be fighting this because mm. fight, helping to, to fight this means saving America, means preserving the freedom and security we have here as well. Uh, they knew the seriousness of the situation then. I'm not surprised in, in many ways that the first people that understood what Ukraine is going through are our own veterans here in the United States. Now, let me ask you a question, because it's, it's got to be difficult to perform, especially after a pandemic and now a war. Um, are you finding maybe ways to do it virtually? Yeah. Is that what you've done? For the, for the last two years, I've been home performing more magic for more people around the world. Right there from my studio at home, I've got two daughters, one and three, so raising them. I get to finish my show, bring people together, do amazing things right from home. And it's been an incredible time, despite the difficulty during the pandemic, to bring joy and connect people who are working remotely. Well, I think it's pretty cool that you're uh, doing a lot of things remotely, but you still came here tonight because you wanted to show us some special tricks. I did, I did. So I've been traveling all this week, doing shows, raising yeah. funds to help Ukraine. And I thought I would show you kind of a, a virtual, kind of a mixed virtual magic trick. Okay. Because what I was, I was online talking with my new friend, Dimitri, who I'd uh -huh. met during this war. And I asked him to show me a trick on Zoom and he did a really great trick. And I thought, this is the one I've got to do for you. Okay. So I've got a little video. Now we recorded this, not live, because right. he's sleeping right now in Ukrainian time. We hope so. <laughs> but we're going to play this little video and you're going to follow along. Now he's going to speak Ukrainian. I will translate for you. I'm so glad to hear that because I was going to be really in trouble. I'm here to, to help. That. Thank you so much. <laughs> so first we have diamonds, clubs, hearts, and spades. I'm going to ask you, please take those cards for me okay. if you would. Look through them. Make sure you see that they are in fact diamonds, clubs, hard spades. Looks like a pretty standard deck of cards. Perfect. Yep. And we're going to play a little video, and you'll okay. see Dimitri right over here. Kostya, that's how my name, everyone says it differently. <laughs> he says, I'm going to show you a very special magic trick. He's got cards. He's in Ukraine. We're here nationally. you got your cards. Shuffle them up. You can give him a riffle yeah. shuffle, an overhand shuffle, whatever you like. Give him a nice little mix. You can use my hands. If you like a little table, that might make it easier for you. And then give it a little overhand shuffle, too, if you want. Give it a little oh. one of those, a little mix, too. You see the cards mixed. Like Maverick on TV. There you go. Now, I, I know you can see it. Can you separate the cards in half? Yes. And then take either half and toss it over your shoulder. Just, just toss like them. Get rid of them. Always That's wanted it. to do that. Yeah, just like him. That's it. Shuffle the rest. Shuffle okay. the rest. Minimal mix. Separate them again in half. And then take the two halves in your hands. And once again, whichever half you want, just toss it over your shoulder for me. Gone. That's it. I love making a mess. How many, how many do you have left? We got about a quarter left. Okay. I'll go through like this. Say stop anytime. Stop. Right there, you sure? Yep. Can you That's... place your hand out? Hang on to it. Don't look at it just yet. Okay. Because, oh, it's okay, it's okay. We'll look at another. It dropped face down. Go oh. ahead, grab it for me. If you, you stepped it right there. Hang but on to it real tight. It. Don't look at it? I don't want to show you. Look, they're all gone. Okay. He ended with the three of spades. In Ukraine, if after all of this, in your hands, you've narrowed it down to the three of spades, what do you think? 
It'll be a miracle. <laughs> Let's take a look. A three of spades. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Very nicely done. That's yeah. there you go. A little Ukrainian magic for you. <laughs> I don't know how you did that. You did it. Yeah, I did that. I'm, I'm really magic. I'm amazed. That is crazy. Well, you can see more of the amazing magic of Kosta Kimlat, as well as the great work that he's doing to help Ukrainian refugees by going to Huckabee.tv. We've got all the links that you're going to need, and they will magically appear when you go there. Right now, Keith Bilbrey, he's going to do some revealing. He's going to reveal what's in store for us on the show. Well, coming up, meet a Huck's hero. Then get ready for the music of Rare Earth's Peter Rivera on Huckabee. Well, the good work of Samaritan's Purse continues all over the world and right here on the home front because of the generosity of people just like you. Now, I hope you'll consider going to the Samaritan's Purse website or calling them, doing it today, partnering with them in all the good work that God is doing through Samaritan's Purse. Thank you, and God bless you for helping Samaritan's Purse. Well, our next guest is an eight-year Army veteran who served two years in Iraq, so he knows firsthand the trauma that war can inflict on our troops. But when he came home, he realized that most Vietnam veterans never got the warm embrace and the help they deserved. So he founded a nonprofit called Engage Your Destiny to help them heal. That's why he's this week's Huck's Hero. When I was 13 years old, I'll never forget seeing those planes fly into the buildings in New York. I sensed in that moment when I saw it that I was called to be a part of the military. I travel this nation and go where God leads me. I go into active duty military bases. Uh, we train soldiers, we train airmen, marines, and sailors on resiliency, how to recover from uh, combat, from difficult experiences, how to prepare for what the military demands of them. There are bases where the divorce rate is over 80%. Engage Your Destiny exists to reach the lost, the broken, and the forgotten. And because of my story and what God has brought me out of through my time in Iraq and my time in the military, I'm able to relate and communicate a message that brings hope and healing into the lives of combat veterans, military, and their families. We are seeing hundreds of our military coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are partnering with chaplains across this nation who want to see an awakening, who want to see a move of God. We are partnering with churches that want to be a part of the follow-up, that want to disciple, that want to be a part of this mission. Let's find a way to pierce the darkness with the message that we know will bring the light. Please welcome eight-year Army veteran and the founder of Engage Your Destiny, Ben Peterson. Ben, great having you here, my friend. How are you doing, sir? 
You know, I, I'm very much touched by the fact you, when you came home, you'd been a chaplain and worked with chaplains in the military, yet yeah. that didn't completely give you uh, some insulation from having PTSD yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when, when you're in combat, I mean, even in on, on the sixth day of our tour, we lost seven of our guys in a helicopter crash. Mm. Um, and so being a chaplain's assistant and assisting in all the things in the military, not only was I the infantry bodyguard of the chaplain, but I was also his ministry assistant. So we had, you know, uh, soldiers that were struggling with the death of other fallen comrades. Um, we had so many traumatic things happen throughout that year. And so you're in the thick of not only the uh, physical trauma of combat, but the emotional trauma of all the soldiers and what they're going through. Ben, I understand that there was a point at which you were so desperate that you literally considered taking your own life and becoming one of those 22, 23 veterans every day yeah. who commit suicide. Yeah, I, I hit a point, uh, it was about three o'clock in the morning and I, I was uh, at that critical decision and I called my uh, mentor and um, he answered the phone and I said, you know, why, why is this happening? Hmm. And he said, Ben, um, you are exactly where the disciples were when they lost Jesus. Hmm. And I got pretty annoyed at him because I didn't want a Bible lesson at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he said, what you can't see, just like the disciples couldn't see, was the greatest victory the world had ever known in, in Jesus dying for our sins. They just, they just saw Jesus die. They didn't see the victory. But three days later, they had a resurrection day, and they knew why they went through what they went through. And he said, Ben, um, a resurrection day is going to come for you. Wow. And you're going to know why. And the thousands of soldiers we've seen come to Jesus on bases and the work we've done to heal veterans has been my resurrection day. What a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, if you'd taken your life, this entire ministry would never have happened. God really called you to it. Yeah. I'm so impressed that you have made a focus to help the Vietnam veterans because I think our country uh, did them wrong, yeah. did not honor their service as we should. These are heroes. Yeah. And they went through an enormous level of, of difficulty. And when they came home, they did not get the warm welcome. What led you to say, I want to especially help these Vietnam veterans? Yeah, um, well, I, I came home in 2009 and it was at that time that protesters had begun showing up at Iraq veteran funerals. And um, so you gotta imagine a family is trying to mourn the death of their son yeah. and protesters are showing up. Uh. And uh, I got off the bus and the first thing that I saw was over a hundred Vietnam veterans lined up shoulder to shoulder, holding the American flag and mm. guarding my welcome home. And it was at that point that I, I had a very, uh, you know, just Jesus clear moment where I just had a vision of seeing uh, a stadium filled with Vietnam vets getting healed and getting honored. And that's what we're doing. Ben, you've got a very significant festival coming up. The Heroes Honor Festival yeah. with a guy that a few people may have heard of, Toby Keith. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, we went and we rented out the Daytona Speedway in the middle of COVID. Uh, the timing was great. Not a lot of people <laughs> wanted to do events in 2020. So yeah. we thought, well, let's, let's, let's go for it. Yeah. And um, we rented out the Speedway and, you know, Governor DeSantis, Toby Keith, Justin Moore, Ann Margaret, um, all these incredible, uh, Oliver North, all these incredible people came around this and said, yeah, we want to be a part of this too. So we currently have over 22,000 veterans that are gonna fill that stadium and we're gonna have an incredible Memorial Day weekend. That is going to be fantastic. And uh, you know, I also wanna 
ask you about, uh, you were one of the people that was interviewed for I Am Second, a wonderful film series, yeah. where people share their stories. Hmm. Um, how can people access your story? Because I think it's a story worth hearing. Yeah, go to I Am Second, and uh, it's the war on rage. And one of the elements of my story that really hit home was uh, when you're in combat or you go through traumatic experiences, you learn that helplessness in these helpless situations produces a rage in you. Mm. And in order to heal the rage and the anger that is in so many veterans, we need to confront the helplessness that we were a part of and let Jesus heal that. Mm. So that's a lot of the work that we've been doing. Ben, you've been getting it right, and I cannot tell you how grateful we are for your service. It's why we wanted to name you our Huck's Hero of the Week for the things that you're doing. And if you want to see Ben Peterson's I Am Second film, or learn more about the Heroes Honor Festival, or more on the work of Engage Your Destiny, all of which very, very significant. If you'll visit Huckabee.tv, we will give you links to all of those things that Ben is involved in. Now, believe it or not, there's still more to come on this show. Keith Bilbrey is just dying to tell you about it. And I don't want him to die on us. I want him to tell you about it instead. So Keith, let us in on the secret. Well, I just want to celebrate because Peter Rivera of the classic rock band Rare Earth is up next on Huckabee. Don't miss Huckabee next week with conservative journalist Savannah Hernandez and comedian Jeff Allen. And welcome back. I got to tell you, I'm pretty, pretty amped up about this next segment. As lead singer and drummer for the classic rock band Rare Earth, my next guest helped blend rock and R&B into a hard-driving sound that topped the charts with unforgettable hits like Get Ready, I Just Want to Celebrate, many, many others. Because the music of Rare Earth was very much a part of the fabric of my life in the 60s and 70s. And as a bass player in a rock band back in those days and a radio disc jockey, I was just a fan of their innovative sound. Well, tonight I'm celebrating having him back on the show. Please give a very warm welcome to the one and only Peter Rivera. Yeah. You know, Peter, when you were here before, I think when you left, you said, that Huckabee's a dud, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him Good one night. more chance. I'm going to give him one more chance and come back. You're going to play bass tonight. I am. Okay, we'll be listening. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> you know, I, you've been doing this since 1960. I'm blown away. I mean, yeah. you still love it. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I really do. It's the, probably the, the main thing in life, you know. What first that in a family. What you know? first motivated you in music? Because you preceded the Beatles. For many of us, the Beatles is what turned us on to rock and roll. My dad taught me spoons because I got hit by a car and shattered my leg. Oh. So he felt bad, so I played spoons. I was five. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 10, a guy, door-to-door -door salesman, sold music lessons. Really? And he said, I'm going to test your son. Tell me which note is lower. And he goes, ah. Oh. <laughs> I said, the lower one. He looked at my mother and he goes, your son has a remarkable aptitude. <laughs> <laughs> what a salesman. So I took, yeah. I took three lessons Yeah. because they were teaching me all this stuff. And the fellow was from another country, uh -huh. broken English. And all he's teaching me, I thought, 
No, no, it's Chuck Berry and Duke Lillington. And, there you go. And I want to get back to my dad's 78 records, you know, so I quit lessons and then just went from there. Just a failure, Peter. It just didn't work just, out for just, you, that music well, thing. You know, uh, I think it worked out pretty it beautifully. It worked out okay, yeah. Did, did your parents ever say, now, now, Peter, this music thing is okay, but you got to have something that make a living out of it. No, well, uh, my dad was a little skeptical about it, but when I was playing in the best nightclub in Detroit and I brought my mother and father down, I told the waitress, anything they want, <laughs> give it to them. My dad went, hey, this music's a pretty good stuff. <laughs> Tell me why Detroit, Michigan yep. has been such the center of a lot of American, both rock and roll, as well as R&B. You're from Detroit. I mean, you go through the list. It's, it's Aretha Franklin. It's, uh, you know, yep. the Funk Brothers at yep. Hitsville. But it's uh, Mitch Ryder and the MC5 yep. and Ted Nugent. You start, why Detroit, Michigan? Well, I, I, I don't know how they all got there, but I, I think that the fact that our, our fathers were mostly factory workers. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have a lot to go on. So what we had was our practices. And we liked to get together and practice and practice and practice. And that's how we came out of Detroit, you know, just playing all the time. You know, in the wintertime, it's not a fun place to be around. So you just go to rehearsals and you stay there. And it just kept going. And then we got a job playing at a bar mitzvah. And then we did a wedding and <laughs> finally went into the club thing and built our way up to the top club in the city. And then we were lucky that Motown was in Detroit. Yeah. So it wasn't too hard to, to have them hear what we were doing. And they invited us into the studio for five days and we recorded. And at the end of the five days, we had an album done and nobody played it. Six months later, it took off and sold millions of records. There's reasons for that. It's a long story, but they eventually played it. Well, I'm glad they did because I would have Motown missed... didn't know how to promote albums. Ah, they just had singles. Singles, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so we kind of had to educate them into that. And then it took off, so... Boy, did it ever. Yeah. I mean, the music of Rare Earth is, is very, very central to a lot of the innovative music that came out of the 60s and early 70s. And, you know, I mean, you hear a Rare Earth tune and immediately you know what it is. So there was a certain artistry that you guys had. Well, you know, uh, we, we just worked hard and, and uh, you know, had producers and engineers and we just played. Our first album was just the, the most favorite songs that we played in the club. Yeah. Nothing, we didn't know songs we had written. We just did the songs from the club. We didn't know any better, you know. It was just so new and uh, just clicked. You know, I'll tell you what uh, is about to click. You're going to go on the stage and perform. I'm going to get to perform with you, and I am so very excited about that. Bass. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to have some fun. And while I join Peter in the band and get ready to rock the house, Keith Bilbrey is going to tell all of our viewers how they can hear and get Peter Rivera's great, and I mean great, music. Keith? Well, you can find Peter's tour dates and get signed copies of his latest album and see a digital exclusive performance of Trust by going to Huckabee.tv. Now, performing a rare earth classic with Trey Corley in the Music City Connection with Mike on bass, here's Peter Rivera! Yeah. 